Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Lucy Hounsom. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Megan Lee. In last year's episode on magical realism, we talked about this genre's ability to take a recognisable setting and tilt it a few degrees, creating something familiar and yet not quite what we're used to. Alternate history can do this too. By revisiting a moment in time and fitting a different lens to the camera, we can see and hear the people whose stories, for whatever reason, might not have been recorded or recorded only in a single convenient context. Add a speculative element to this, magic, for instance, and the possibilities for exploration seem endless. But what challenges do we face in recreating our own history? What truths does it force us to confront? Joining us tonight is debut author Nicole Glover, whose novel The Conductors combines murder, mystery and magic to re-examine a period of American history. So um, over to you, Nicole. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourself and your work to our listeners? Hello, everyone. I'm Nicole Glover, as mentioned. My debut novel is coming out next March. And so, like I call it, it's a mixture of different, I call it a genre mixture of history, mystery, and fantasy. Whereas, whereas the, I take the idea of, of what the former conductors might have done after the Civil War ended. And in my, my view of the book, they solved murders. So it's been great fun with me and excited to start, be able to start sharing with, with people very, fairly soon. Brilliant. Um, well, I thought we'd kind of start with um, the alternate history um, aspect, um, because, you know, what are the challenges that a writer might encounter when creating um, an alternate history setting? Like, how much do you keep of the original history? How much do you change? And like, maybe how much do you take out entirely um, to make or create a, a believable story? I found when I started figuring, figuring out how I'm going to do the historical fantasy part, the alternate history part, was finding out what was my limit for it. It's very easy to fall into the to the, the, the well of like when there's like special things like magic to exchange everything. And it's it takes it really away from the historical part. I had to draw my line in the sand of how much history do I want to portray in the book? How much fantasy elements do I want to influence that history? And... Where can I find a good balance where the actual real history is still clear to people and, but still it's my fans elements are still obvious. It, all the other thing I had to consider was that some parts of history I'm illuminating aren't really like well-known details. A lot of black history, especially in the U S is not really explored. You don't, unless you just kind of specialize, seek it out. You're not going to know, know all the details. So I had to be really careful about what was things I'm making up, what were things that are actually true, and just making sure it was kind of clear to people. Usually when I add like magic elements to things I would hope people would know, it's, you know, that's not, that didn't really happen. But there are cases where I just kind of took what already was there and kind of just added magic on it to kind of exaggerate. And I think another, another thing I found as I was building out the book was what was the point of history I wanted to start changing? In my view of the book is that magic has always been around. So I never really worry too much about when that, I guess, how much magic I'm going to change. But I know in some cases, 
thinking like other like alternate history books, I had and listening to other people who would write historical fantasy as well. I think they had talked about I guess thinking of the point in history where this is the one thing that changes like moving forward. Or or I guess also seriously thinking about what things could influence be influenced and change differently by magic. I think one of the conversations I had with my editor was like thinking in the future, like it, how much would magic influence the history drastically? Like, you know, it's, if you're going to throw magic into something, it's going to change everything logically from what we know as our current history. But it's, it depends on how much I want things to change. And even though at some point I was writing the book, I I, I guess I was it was torn with the idea of like you know changing everything to like to my ideal world, but I think because I was also wrote the book to kind of explore the history that I was kind of learning a bit as I was doing my re- doing my research for the book, and so I kind of just dialed pulled back a little bit, although it did make it interesting at points when like I wanted to allude to like tiny details, certain things, and I'm trying to decide if if I was really going to be like keen on like, you know, the inventions of say like, uh, of, I don't know, like push pins or post-it notes or typewriters or things like that. Do I really care about like, exactly when this point of history it is that ha- really happens? Or do I just, you know, just say magic influences technological advances and all those like things that kind of built in with the world building was all things I kind of considered. You mentioned that a lot of black history isn't really taught. It isn't, something that's widely known necessarily. And how does that play into when you're thinking about alternate histories? Because you often have problems with even just sort of straight fantasy, say, where you kind of get that, you know, that limit on, you know, the suspension of disbelief. But when it comes to history, at least in my experience of history, and one thing that I love about history is that often what has actually happened is almost too fantastical to be believed. And when it comes to a history that is real, but is often neglected, is often left out of the history books, and is often very painful for some and shameful for others, it potentially, you know, could really cross over that line of, Either people don't want to hear that or even that they don't believe that that could have happened even if it did. I mean, how do you keep that in mind or, or work with that kind of complication? Yeah, I think that's something I'm still kind of working through as I continue to write. And I also explore different stories, not just within this particular book, but other stories kind of touch, touching on history. And I think that's something I kind of keep in mind too as I write, is that it's not I'm not trying to be 100% accurate about the, the, the history of that time period is, is, is me again interpreting a mixture of what I'm the current thought of the contemporary issues right now and looking at through the history aspect of it. Because the Reconstruction era, everything I've researched of it, it's still applicable to this day in the U.S. at the moment. From everything from you know, there's the impeachment happened back then. We had issues of, of governments being overthrown by people who aren't really happy about things are changing. All this, like any, all the, all I read a lot of like primary sources of the writing of that time period, and anything that was, I still, all the, a lot of things I said, that all the things I read, I had told people, friends and family and stuff like that. Everything I read, like it's, I can still, I can apply it. I can change some names, change some dates, and it still applies today. When it comes to more like well-known histories of, or at least well-known like eras that are frequently top 
uh, told in different places that it's easier to make those changes to say, you know, the world wars, things like that, because we kind of know the framework of that history. And so we can like change things where like, you know, there's like psychic mediums working within the, for the different spying for the ally, for the allies or or versus access powers and stuff like that. That's because you have already have the, the, the foundation of knowing what that history is when it comes to lesser known history. There is a risk of, I guess, like I think I mentioned earlier about people confusing what's real and what's not, even when they don't have fantastical elements to it. And I think you also feel like an actual burden as responsibility to make it clear of, like, I guess, kind of having stating your facts, showing off your research within the writing itself. You feel like you have to be responsible enough to explain certain things. I know when writing my book, I'd for, for like for wider like more well known topics like general civil war stuff, I didn't really go into detail or make or like a or really highlight it too much. There are a few spots I did kind of to add in more historical context or certain things to especially to to make it sure clear it wasn't something I was just making up. It's really interesting what you said about this period of history not necessarily being that well known, despite being incredibly pivotal in the history of America. And I was thinking about the fact that there was also the Doctor Who episode recently that was about um, Rosa Parks. And I know you referenced that in your book very obliquely in one little spot, don't you? Where Hetty gets on a bus and she goes to sit and have her own space. And some white men say, oh, but, you know, loads of people made an issue so you could sit with us on the bus. Why don't you come and sit with us, darling? And are really creepy about it. And I just thought that was really interesting, given that Doctor Who have just done an episode on the whole Rosa Parks issue and they were interwove time and time travel and history altogether. And they picked the same sort of same sort of idea. So I just wonder, because you, this Underground Railroad itself sounds so fantastical and, and mystical, was this piece of American history particularly lending itself to being reimaginative is speculative fiction compared to, like you were saying earlier, with the Civil War, where it's all kind of really well known? Yeah, I, I, guess, I, guess I did want to raise one quick point. When you mentioned Rosa Parks, now that you brought the context, my reference actually with that particular scene was, it was actually another event happened in in Philadelphia in 1867, I believe, but they actually desegregated streetcars back then. This was actually a reference to a young teacher at that time period who had helped, who led the efforts to desegregate the streetcars. And that was another thing I found interesting with the research is that a lot of that a lot of the stuff that we'd known from the current civil rights room has already long been happening for a while. So that that was my that was my actually my more direct historical reference to that. Just to, to just to kind of shine a little history hat with that thing. No, no, time. that's great. That's fantastic. Because like I say, it was just a little throwaway line that I noticed, and I thought, ah, and I obviously made the wrong historical link, but it was good that it was in there and you could see it. I loved that bit. Yeah, but your um, Charlotte, your reference point is like a hundred years later, which is, um, I guess, as Nicole's saying, is kind of. Well, it's it's sad because we thought it was all happening in like the 1960s, but it all happened in the 1860s as well. And it's it a long, a long history. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. There's just a long history of civil rights movements for, I guess, basically since the country has been founded. There's been like lots of free black populations in the north that have been working on civil rights for a while. I think I remember seeing stuff about. Uh, Someone in New York, 1833, he owned a book sh- a bookshop that's published anti-slavery pamphlets and stuff. And it's, yeah, it's a long history of different things. I mean, 
like, you know, beating everything that, that's all the civil rights movements, all that you'd probably known from that particular area had happened before. That's where they learned it, basically. Generations kind of passing on this stuff. So it's fascinating from a historical standpoint. It's fascinating from a world building standpoint. It's sad from like a personal standpoint of seeing this stuff in cycles. But yeah, it's where we are. But to go on your other, the other part question about uh, the fantastic elements of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, I did find a lot of, of, I did find it lends the history lends a lot really easily to like the fantastical, mostly because I had started, I did a lot of my research with looking into some folk tales and folk stories too, alongside historical research. I went deep into a lot of the African-American folk tales, some collected by story writer of Virginia Hamilton and some other as folk tale artists like Nor uh, Zora Neale Hurston and some other lesser known people who had collected for different decades, particularly during the, the Great Depression's, uh, uh, the works, parks of the WPA program they had where they collect uh, stories from former slaves, from people that were formerly enslaved from their time, they kind of collect stories from then, collect stories from people who'd heard from other people, like from relatives, family members, and stuff like that. And it's a lot of interesting elements. One of the things, one of the themes that some of the books would be collected in certain themes, like Flying Africans was a, a big theme, which kind of shows up in, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, particularly. And it's because it ties into the whole, like, the idea with the flying was like a metaphor for disappearing from getting away from things. I've read, um, like, stories that were like, there was one folk story I remember reading about someone who did a boat. They had a boat to Newcastle, brought people from this, like, freedom to basically over it during the night took a boat across the river and stuff like that. That was a folk story. And it's, you know, they couldn't really confirm or deny that person actually existed in history, but that story was inspired by accounts of certain things like that. And I mean, the underground world itself is like a metaphor for things. Cause there's the, I guess the real boom of railroads was like 1850s and the kind of the, un, the underground world itself as the movement for things kind of gotten in its heyday in the 1850s in the U S at the time, because that's right after the fugitive slave act, Went into, went into effect and that really kind of got, I guess, made it more of a big deal for people that get organized in a sense to do certain things. And yeah, I think another large part I found is that there isn't a lot of history resources you have. You only have, like if I said with anything, it's like a, like any, if people wrote it down, if people, a few people shared it, you'll get the, get the sources for that. But otherwise, you know, it really isn't really direct information. Because you, because con- a lot of contemporary sources are limited and scarce. Sometimes you'll find stuff about people referencing outside, outside of things. Um, but there isn't a lot of details, so I guess it's easy to put fantastical elements in there because you don't know if there isn't that much to know with to know about. You just have a few motifs, you have like a few ideas of certain things, and you kind of go with it. Yeah, I mean that um, part about historical doing research into historical period I mean I found that recently um, researching my own historical book is that I think we tend to think of history as you know especially when you're writing historical fiction you think oh god there's a whole load of history buffs out there if I get one thing wrong they're going to come down on me like a ton of bricks Um, and we think oh well history is like an immutable thing there are all these sources but then once you you know you start to dive into it you realize how 
subjective um, and in many places completely biased these sources are and they're meant to be our like primary sources for a period you think my god these sources were written by the people in charge and if they weren't then they were written 200 years later by the the dynasty that became the founding dynasty if in this case i'm talking about england um and and you're like well suddenly all of that so-called history that i have you know been researching um it, I have to take it with the most enormous pinch of salt. So I think in in situations like that, the the doorway to speculative fiction is kind of wide open because you can begin to, you know, not saying that it's time to correct um, history, but it is certainly time to, you know, there's an opportunity there to um, expand the conversation and say that maybe the sources that have reached us are not the entire story. Yeah, I agree. I'd your your point about like looking at who wrote some of these history books kind of reminded me of a time when I was playing around with a, a steampunk novel way back when it was set in basically in Africa drawing from western and eastern parts of the continent and you know all the history books I was pulling out I was I think after a while I started checking out who was writing these and these are like these are all like white men white women who were writing these books about the history of Africa for certain things and I was like ugh. Like it's, it's it's an interesting thing thing that made me start being aware of like when I was who I'm pulling the sources from, and especially when I wrote when I basically I started writing the conductors too. I started looking into who's writing it from what certain certain standpoints as well. Especially when I start pulling out older books because I end up when using them in my library for some of these like really specific topics, and I end up pulling out really old books too for some of the for certain specific topics I wanted to because especially because I had, I was able to narrow things down to Philadelphia in this time period. So I was able to find specific books and some of them end up being kind of older. And and that's why some of it pivoted a bit to like primary sources too, where I was actually got lucky. I was able to find some really good primary sources that kind of helped me with the research that kind of filled in some of the blanks of like the day-to-day life. Like my best find in research was a, like a pocket diary of a free free black woman called Emily Davis who wrote, had these books. He wrote to her like a little diary for between 1863 and 1865. So she, through, while she was living in Philadelphia, so she goes to highlight some things of like when there was the fears of like a Confederate uh, coming to, coming to invade the city at that time, or when the, the war was over, declared over, or, or when Lincoln was shot and the news came to the city. And and I got little tidbits of that, plus her day-to-day lives, too, because all the visits to her, her friends and families, even, like, her little accounts of, like, the weather or being sick or, like, other things and working and stuff like that. It was, like, a really nice find because it's, like, something you really don't really see a lot, especially, too, since she was also, I think, a comfortably middle middle class too as well so it wasn't like she's a wealthy really wealthy either which is kind of excuse some of the i guess feeling of day-to-day life as well and it was it was kind of weird when i first thinking like what do these people do like they don't have like television or internet so what, what are they doing in their free time it's stuff like that that is so hard to find any information on um the further back you go in history like the more impossible it becomes isn't it it's the small things this day-to-day even things like what sort of material do they use in a certain building or like it's just this is the point where you kind of have to say look okay this this is this happened but we don't know anything about it and and we're just gonna have to like go with what seems as credible as possible yeah 
I think also too, I heard sometimes not, not, not and not every reader is going to really care about certain details about mm-hmm. certain things. I mean, there, there will be like a handful of people who are like, oh, this isn't like the right colored paint they had available <laughs> at that time. One of the things I loved about the conductors was the strong element of Hetty's magic being in her sewing. So my mother sews a lot, mostly like just mostly things for us. She had gotten a sewing machine from her grandmother that she had eventually replaced when I got older. And I guess there's, I think there's this interesting history of like, even though I don't sew myself, I think the idea of like making something, how important sewing was. I think the more I did research about like uh, cis people sewing and from embroidering to like dressmaking to like, tailoring, all this other stuff. I was, I was kind of fascinated with all the kind of the work and skill with the things. And sometimes, especially back in the day when it used to be more personal, like it's a, it's like since all the work went into all the hours went into and other things like that. So I think the idea of it being tied to her magic was something that kind of felt right to me. And also it was something that gave her ability to move up in the world work-wise. Uh, like, I think it's in the book I've mentioned in her, like her, her backstory is that when she's back in the days when she was enslaved, she was basically sewing was the way she had some value to the person, the people who owned her. And it was something she got, it gave her some value, gave her some little bit of power. And that even, and even that in like terrible situation she had. And once she moved into Philadelphia and, and after like everything, the you know, freedom, everything, all, all that else follows. Uh, like being able to sew and make dresses and all that other stuff gave her ability to move employers. And I might, I may exaggerate a bit in the book about her, like being like, Oh, I can, or her like wanting to feeling like I will quit whenever I want to. And it was good. Find a, another place. Cause in the, in the view of the book, she's like, she's like one of the best dressmakers in town, whether it's just, you know, what I call straight sewing with like no magic or sewing with enchantments. And like, I guess this is something I wave. I guess I also this is my way of like mixing like a, I guess women's power with sewing and yeah. Well, I found it a really relatable kind of magic. I mean, you had obviously some people within um, your world that use wands, but I I really thought it was it was so wonderful because sewing is something that I do and I understand, and I just love this idea that you could have something as mundane as sewing that could have could be as powerful as a wand. I just thought it was an ingenious idea. Yeah, I think the. When the main magic system I have the characters use, like what I'm calling celestial magic, is that it's the. I think I've I found it more like it. I think I viewed it as more of like an organic. It kind of gets it, whatever it it kind of works with what they need to work with. Some, I think for like for example with Benji's side, since he's a blacksmith, he would use it within his his craft as well, and and people would be able to use different things as their tools, whereas. Yeah, the other counterpoint of sorcery with all their wands is more rigidly defined by certain other rules and not as flexible as the other forms of magic. Oh, I think this is a great opportunity to dive in and talk a bit more about the magic systems. Because, you know, in the conductors, you've actually got kind of two separate magic systems. Um, and it's interesting with this, the way that they, they interact. And there's an awful lot, I feel, that's packed into that, that is kind of beneath the surface about prejudice, um, about power, about who is allowed to do what in this society. Um, so when you're thinking about creating these systems, um, like how much of the the racial debate went into creating these two separate types of magic and, and the rules that governed who was allowed to do what? Yeah, it's a... It was an interesting thing. I, I came across the, the rules and stuff. Like it was like kind of very quick process of how I was defining it. I'd always been a f- fan of astrology. A constellation based system was like 
like perfect ideal for me once I kind of had that in mind. And once I had that in place, I was thinking like, what does everyone else do? Because I wanted my world to be a world where everyone does magic. But I, I had this idea of people did different sorts of magic. And that's where... And that's where kind of where the source, when I kind of developed the sorcery system, because I, I, everyone's kind of familiar with like a, the wand waving kind of form of magic. And I thought that was like more structured for things. And I like the idea of that being more of the the magic that's kind of outlawed in a sense. Because I know as, as I did my, doing my research and stuff, I came across and there's different, uh, I guess, some uh, black codes at the time. And I actually based off a lot of, of the rules against that 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 outlawed to people that non-white people using wands based off the black codes of the time, specifically around guns, and it kind of mimics that aspect of things. Because I, I as one, I guess one of the metaphors of magic is of it being like a, a privilege in sort of in sort of sense that sorcery was viewed as as like as a more higher level sort of magic by the people who run the world more or less. And they viewed people that, and so in their view, people less people that are lesser cannot use it. So they outlawed that form of magic. I, I call it the magic rights debate within the book. That's like a kind of a, a larger, p- big view of like of how people interact in the real world while if they have a a little different magic systems. Because I think when you when people have like certain powers, they want to have enforce certain things. I guess they kind of pull it back a bit. I wanted to have I wanted to have magic in the world with everyone, and I like the idea of having everyone have separate and unique kind of cultural different mag- different magics. And once that's in the place, like with anything, friction happens. I think what's really interesting is um, that very often when you have a magic system um, in a world, it's actually very rare to find um, universal magic usage. Um, I think magic is very often used by writers as uh, one of the tools of oppression um, and control um, and that you often find that the most powerful magicians are the ones who are you know in command of basically everybody um, so it's really interesting that you recreated a world but you didn't do that because in a way I felt like it, it might have been a natural choice to just go down that route and just give a certain group of people the magical powers and everyone else doesn't have that. Um, so it was really refreshing to find that, you know, you've taken a slightly different approach and said that, you know, there are these two different types of magic and, you know, it's actually, in a way, much more real. It's a silly thing to say when you're talking about fantasy, but I feel like it's a more realistic approach in saying that, you know, there is only this one group of people that have this power. It's actually more likely that a larger group of people would have the power and this power would would have to be um, determined, like the use of that power would be determined in government and in social contexts. Yeah, that's one thing that always kind of bothered me in fantasy stories of like the small group of people having mm. it, whether it's people in power or people being like ostracized for that having powers. And that's like, I guess I got tired of seeing that. Like, you know, it's, I like the idea that everyone has it and it's like a it's just kind of a tool i always because i always view magic as like a kind of a tool to use and i think when it's like limited to certain people it comes you start thinking about like i know a lot of systems like that tend to be like bloodlines and all this other like weird eugenics style stuff and you look when you look at start looking at it really closely and i don't know i guess i think particularly with me i think is when i came with my store i had these characters i want to have them use magic and no i guess i just I guess I wanted, to, I guess I like this, I just wanted to try to like kind of imagine the world where there was kind of, 
there's magic everywhere. And I think it's, I think because I said it, like, you know, it's within like recognizable, like a real, a recognizable world. It's like a world like our own, but slightly different. Because I think all, I guess also maybe because maybe like in the back of my mind, since a kid, I was kind of like wonder like, why do we live in this world where we have no magic, basically? I'm like, I was as a kid, I was a, I liked the idea of like, you know, multiple, uh, multi, the multiverse, where it's like different possibilities of different worlds. And like, you know, there's one world probably out there, everyone has magic. And I was as a kid, I was like, wondering why don't we have a world where we, everyone has magic? That'd be kind of cool. And in some ways, it kind of, it also eases out some of the trickier world building stuff. When you think about it, of I guess large scale wise, like if everyone has magic, you don't have to worry about certain elements of like questioning why. Like, say if you have only one particular group has magic, everyone doesn't, and you know, there's like you start wondering why we're so and so able to do that, and that's where like things like magic has a price part comes in. Whether it's like I know a lot of fantasies will have like stuff like it's magic. Either using using magic causes pain, or you lost blood loss, or you have to have a certain amount of X resources to go certain things, and yeah, it's a, it's a, I guess it's interesting. It's like always an interesting world building aspect that, yeah, that was kind of, it was really fun for me to kind of build out this, what the world looks like if everyone has magic and, and especially in the historical context too. And then I'm thinking about that. You mentioned that sometimes, you know, you, you have these stories and fantasy where only like a small group of people have magic or know about magic and so on it just it made me think about how so much of those kinds of fantasy stories ends up being trying to explain away how these like incredible things happen and yet still somehow the the entire rest of the world remains completely oblivious <laughs> and that for me is a major like okay my suspension of disbelief is utterly shattered now although i have to admit i did quite like how they dealt with it in buffy where it was just like oh just tell everyone it was pcp like it was just pcp i don't know <laughs> yes because drugs explain the giant snake that appeared at our prom or like well Oh, sorry, graduation. But yeah, um, that that's always a bugbear of mine. So yeah, I like the idea of that it when you have something, it's it's completely within the world. Um, it just it makes a nice change from a lot of, of fantasy, as you say. One of the things I loved about the conductors was as well as being a magical fantasy kind of story and mixing fantastic historical fact there was a mystery in there to be solved. And I've written mysteries, ghost written them, and they are so much fun to plan, but they have to be really logical and you have to be really careful with it, or at least I do when I plan them. And you have to figure out how people are naturally going to come across clues and how they're going to, you know, their mind is going to work and they're going to figure it all out and piece it all together. Did you find it quite tricky to try and have developing magic systems in one hand and trying to do all the normal non magical clues and how magic kind of gets in there and there's not sort of an out is there any desire to kind of go you know what they could just cast a spell and they'll figure out what the answer is or whatever so I'm kind of interested to see how you merge those two genres and still made it work because it worked really well and there was no point when I went oh they've just cast a spell and found the answer they kind of interwoved it with traditional detective skills but I wondered how hard that was for you to do or whether it just came like that I like to say I like to say it was just like that, <laughs> but I think that's that that's the the the, the pleasures of revision that kind of helps me with smoothing out some like rougher edges. But I do I will say that when I plot the mystery, I kind of set the I, I figure out who's get who's who's murdered, who did it, and like why, and the potential reasons, and kind of I write that down. 
and that kind of stays doesn't really wiggle around like it's, it's me like changing out details and the arrangements of like where certain clues are and foreshadowing because i write in the in a weird way like it's a, i write sequentially then i do revisions and passes and stuff like that and, and move things around i think at one point when i'm heading into revision i, get, I basically i restructure the book and figure out how where things fit but as to what kind of working in the the magical aspects of the mystery. I, I, I view magic as a tool that kind of help them solve certain things. And I think put, I put some limitations on what kind of magic they can use it for. And so that kind of, that kind of guides me to like not making it too, like too easy, like too easy, like say like in like, you know, like, like you said, to cast a spell and figure out who did it. I think, I, I think it helped because I've always been a big fan of like all the classical uh, mysteries and stuff like that, figuring out like the slow of, pulling up the clues and everything like that. So I, I yeah, because I, yeah, I, basically I view it as a tool to use to help like enhance certain things. And I just think about like what's, I guess when it comes to the mystery, like a mix of like how they would basically, how would magic reveal certain things to them that they might notice like with their eyes, but magic can kind of enhance. Like one thing I had like in there was like magical residue, residue from like spells and stuff. I use, it made, it made a natural sense having, they'll have ability to do some kind of detection spell to figure out, to see who these traces are and, or be able to ways that they figure out when they're encountering like a trap set by magic and how to, to deal with that and all that, that kind of fun stuff like that. I am very impressed because I wouldn't dare write a mystery. I always think murder mysteries are really difficult to write because I mean, like how much do you have to know in advance about who did it and how? <laughs> Well, that's a great question because whenever I do it, I kind of don't know at the beginning and I have a, a few people and then I kind of go, it's probably him. And I know that when Agatha Christie started, she didn't know who did it either. She just kind of like, well, let's see what happens. But yeah, how did you do it, Nicole? Yeah, I literally just wrote the book and got to the end. It's like, figure out who's left as a potential suspect and like, that's the guy. And then I went back and revisions and made it and did all the red herrings for the other non-suspects, the other suspects, and made his motivation, baked his motivation more into the character, his, their, all those other stuff. And yeah, and to make, yeah, that's, that's what the revision is. But with my, as I'm working on the follow-up throughout the right at the moment, and since I'm working that on like a more scheduled, I actually did like did did detail like you know who's the victim who did it why and had that basically wrote that sheet the first thing before I even started writing out the draft but yeah with the with the conductors it was like it's all organic like yeah I, I had no, I had no idea when I was going into it but I think now I think now going going forward I, I think I had gotten this more of a schedule because it did it did help knowing having an idea who it is because even though I'm not really much of a person to like kind of plot things out I think with the the mystery you want to have certain like puzzle pieces in place so that's like something i'd i'd yeah i was trying to be careful about because i think you can i think i'm off but at the same hat so i'm sometimes worried that knowing it too much might make it too obvious i'm telegraphing in, in the book that it's like oh this is obviously this person but that also leads me to thinking like a the shifting of like how mysteries can be can can be reviewed differently it's more of like it's less of a who done it like more like why done it in a sense I know a lot of classical mysteries are like about who did it, but like more of like the classics, like I'm more than thinking more like like Knives Out that came out fairly recently. It's more like you, you kind of know who did it in the movie, but you don't want to know like why in a sense. Like, like from the when I watched the movie, it was like kind of obvious. They're kind of telegraphing who really did it, but they're figuring out why and like the how of it. 
was the more interesting aspect. I would say I just read uh, Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie um, over Christmas. That was a little treat for myself. Um, (laughs) And I feel a bit like that one was definitely the more interesting bit is the why and the how, because the kind of telegraphed killer is the killer, basically. But you just want to know why and how on earth, because you know, that it was so clever about the alibis and everything is just so clever. And that's what makes it really interesting. Um, and I guess that's also why I'm a fan of like Columbo, because you, you know, you actually, even there, you know, the certainly the how and who did it, but just even following Columbo as he tries to figure out that and come, you know, and and get to the bottom of it and just see him being clever and seeing when he's going to figure it out. And then he also then will discover the why of it. Um, that is more than enough mystery to keep me hooked. Yeah. It's all those fascinating aspects of like what really draws you to the mystery. And I think that's probably what makes, I guess the mystery genre like still like really fascinating to kind of go to or something that makes it easy to kind of add to different genres as well. So I think, I think, I, I think you see like, you can see like mystery kind of mixing with different things and it's just, it's kind of fun to just figure out the why and how and who is like, there's different questions and all this other stuff. Even sometimes even when, like, I guess with the, with the lock mystery, like the locked room mystery and stuff like that. It's like, it's like, all these, all these, have all these questions about different things, just figuring out, like, I guess it's part of the journey. Like the journey is part of the, the fun of it, as they say. Well, I've heard John Connolly speak quite a, a lot about his, his books and one of the things he always sort of describes as being the joy of reading it is going from chaos to order or sort of injustice to justice, which I think works well with what you were saying, particularly with Columbo and everything and seeing how it goes. And I, I think that works perfectly for murder mystery books. But if you're you're talking about writing another one, so I'm kind of interested to know, obviously with no spoilers, uh, where that's going, because you've kind of got so many different ways to develop with the mystery. Like, do you ramp up the tension and have Hetty and Benji investigating sort of outside of their own inner circle? Because obviously um, it's one of their friends who gets murdered in the first one. So they kind of have a a role to to do there. But you mentioned they've had previous ones. Are they kind of going to work their way up through society until, you know, they're, they're hobnobbing with, you know, really big, powerful people? Or are you going to kind of introduce some more chaos in the magic side to kind of keep the steady mystery going, but go, you know what, I'm going to play around with the magic systems? Or are you just going to throw it all in the air and see what happens? Well, I am working hard. I'm hard at working at this, at the the follow-up for it at the moment. I don't want to actually spoil stuff. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's basically, I like to, as for like what they do, I always feel that they, it's, it's all just, different mysteries and different things like that. I know that if I could write like a, a 10 million long series for them, they'll have different, they'll do different, basically different adventures of like, of whether it's, you know, like whether it's the community stuff, people or people, strangers being something like really extraordinary weird to them or just something they, they find going on and going around in town that they start investigating more and kind of explore things. But in the meantime, having stuff like, going on either in their lives or their friends' lives, they kind of get involved with that. And yeah, kind of like a zillion ideas for like, it's for like potential mysteries they could solve, but like other things going on in the background. So it's really, it's really funny because when I originally wrote The Conductors as like a standalone, standalone story basically. And I think my publisher was like, let's, 
you know, it's, it's, it's make a, like a, it gave me a basic, a two book deal. And it's like, okay, so what they do, what next, next story for them, basically. And a lot of what's in the second book was a few things I'd cut from the first book. Just mostly like historical, like facts and details that, and a couple of characters actually that didn't have enough space to kind of grow, to spread their wings in the first book that were better suited for what I had in mind for the second book. But I don't know. It's, I don't think I've, I don't, it's, as working the way up to the elite since all this, the hobnobs and stuff like that. I don't know. I don't know at the point. I guess I like the idea of them working kind of close at home. I think, I think I kind of developed within, at least with Hattie in particular, that she's like disdainful of like people who are like uber wealthy and whatnot. Rightfully so in a sense, but, but who knows? I mean, who knows what happens if I get 15 books to write. You should just say that um, if our conversation tonight has piqued your interest, then The Conductors is published uh, at the beginning of March. I think it's the 2nd of March in the US and the 4th of March over here in the UK. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.